0: In 2014, Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond was fatally shot by David Martinez during a raid on the Martinez family home. According to law enforcement, the act was murder. According to Martinez, it was self defense. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week we're covering the prosecution's case in the trial of David Martinez, including his involvement with the Mongols, potentially damning items found inside of his home, and evidence that David may have been on drugs the night of the shooting.
1: David Martinez left his house that day a murderer, and he stands here today accused of that murder. And the evidence will show he stood there, He saw an opportunity, and he took his shot.
0: Stick around for the fourth installment of Night Raid after this. Raise your right hand, please. Do you swear or affirm that you will be attentive during this trial and follow the instructions of the court so that you may reach a fair and just verdict, that you will not discuss this case with anyone until submitted for you for deliberation and will keep your verdict secret until it is delivered to the court. If so, say I do. I do. Thank you. You may be seated. On May 6, 2019, a jury of six women, six men, and four alternates were sworn in for the trial of David Martinez. It was approximately four and a half years after the SWAT raid on the Martinez home, four and a half years after Officer Sean Diamond's death, four and a half years after David Martinez was first ordered to be held in the Los Angeles County Jail without bail. Here's how that happened. After David's preliminary hearing in July of 2015, David waited for a pre-trial conference for 54 days, then waited for another pre-trial conference for 73 days, 56 days to another pre-trial conference. It was now 2016. Then 60 days to another pre-trial conference. 47 to another. 35 to another. 37 days to another. 18 days. 24 days. Then 28 days. Then 33. Then 28. 36. 21. 48. It was now 2017. 42 more days. 56. 37. 41. 20. 36. 15. Then 69 to another hearing. It was now 2018. 75 days to the next 57 days, 69, 51, 50, 13, 28, it was now 2019, 33 to another pre-trial conference, 3 days, 12, 28, 21, 23, 6, and then 12 more days to the commencement of trial. That's how it happened. But given the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial, you might wonder, how is that legal? To answer that question, I spoke to Alicia Varani, the director of the criminal justice program at the UCLA School of Law, about what constitutes good cause for the delay of a trial.
2: There's many reasons why somebody's trial could be delayed. And sometimes it's because they need to prepare their defense, right? So you also have the right to effective assistance of counsel. And so you may need to have time to investigate or to hire an expert witness on your behalf to challenge the uh, identification that happened, right? And so there are reasons why somebody may request themselves to have their trial delayed. But generally it may be something like the witness is, is unavailable, let's say, and you did everything you could to try to get the witness there. You had subpoenaed them for that court date, but it's just impossible for them to come. So that could be good cause. If Uh, discovery, new discovery, was just turned over to a defense attorney, that could be a reason for good cause to continue a trial. So there are lots of different reasons why something could be continued for good cause. And it is within the judge's discretion to determine whether good cause has been shown by either party.
0: Finding witnesses and experts, analyzing new incoming discovery, all of that could be a legal justification for delay. And in David's case, His change in lawyers required more time for Brady Sullivan to be adequately prepared to defend his client. By the time of the trial, the L.A. District Attorney's Office had decided that they would not pursue the death penalty. Nevertheless, when proceedings commenced, David Martinez faced a charge of murder in the first degree, as well as the lesser-included charge of second-degree murder. Additionally, David was charged with assault with a firearm on a peace officer— if convicted of first-degree murder and the assault charge, David could be sentenced to life in prison without parole. The proceedings took place in courtroom 105 of the Clara Shortridge Foltz Criminal Justice Center in downtown Los Angeles. Courtroom 105 isn't slick like the courts on TV. No marble floors or golden scales. Strips of fluorescent lights illuminate the court like it's a middle school cafeteria. The wood benches are scarred with chiseled graffiti, and the seal of California on the wall looks like it hasn't been dusted in a decade. Still, like all courtrooms, there's a sacred feel to the place. In the gallery, David's mother Guadalupe bowed her head and whispered prayers into her clasped palms. Officer Diamond's daughter Margot, a woman now in her late 20s, took fervent notes in a palm-sized journal and darted glances at the jury box. Justice was now in the hands of 16 strangers from across Los Angeles County. Diverse in age and race, their ranks included a nurse, a college student, a retiree, a tech worker, and an attorney. Some had backgrounds relevant to the case.
2: My mouth was to the floor when they selected me because, you know, as they're interviewing each person, they're looking at your uh, questionnaire And on there, I had put, you know, I'm the daughter of a police officer, all of my interactions with police officers.
0: Some had immediate opinions about the case. I had no conclusions at
3: any point initially, but I was definitely swayed at the beginning and thought, okay, this will be a pretty easy case to make a conclusion on.
0: In the end, each of the final 12 panelists would be asked to vote for David's acquittal or for his conviction. Their decisions would determine whether David walked free or spent years behind bars. Proceedings in courtroom 105 were not recorded, so all testimony in this episode is portrayed by actors who are reading excerpts from the official transcript. Some excerpts are edited for clarity and time. In all trials, the prosecution presents their case first. So that's what we're focusing on today. Examining the story that the deputy district attorneys are telling to the jury, a story that says that David Martinez was engaged in criminal activity, and that on the night of the SWAT raid, he heard the police at his door, he saw them, and he fired at them with malicious intent. Today we're asking, if we were sitting in the jury box, would we believe the story that David Martinez is guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt? I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. The trial of David Martinez was presided over by Judge Charlene Olmedo, a bespectacled woman with soft brown locks and a sharp wit. Before the bench lay the counsel's table. On the left, the tall and tidy public defender, Brady Sullivan, sat beside his client, David, who wore a crisp new Oxford To the right sat the prosecutors, Jack Garden and Michael Blake. Deputy District Attorney Michael Blake rose for his opening statement. As he spoke to the jury, he held himself with the posture of a politician. His mannerisms deliberate, his phrases pointed.
1: Early in the morning on October 28, 2014, a Pomona SWAT officer named Sean Diamond stood for a moment on a concrete porch is back to the front door of a home in a quiet residential neighborhood in San Gabriel. Officer Diamond was there to serve a court-ordered search warrant on a residence of a biker gang member named David Martinez. In that moment, Sean Diamond could not have known that David Martinez stood less than 10 feet away behind a wooden door on the other side armed with a 12-gauge shotgun in the living room.
0: The bailiff hands Michael Blake a 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun zip-tied for safety.
1: This is the shotgun That was used to kill sean diamond we expect the evidence in this case will show it was a fully functioning 12-gauge shotgun fully loaded with rifled slugs you will hear testimony that reveals a shocking and callous brutality for a person to use this type of weapon when that projectile struck sean diamond it entered at the back of his neck just below the rim of his helmet and above his collar it severed his spinal column and completely tore through and destroyed the bottom half of his face. At the end of this, you will hear no credible justification or excuse for what this man did to SWAT officer Sean Diamond. You will hear no evidence to suggest that Sean Diamond did anything to provoke the shooting. And all the evidence will show that Sean Diamond and the Pomona SWAT team that day professionally did their jobs. The evidence will also reveal that David Martinez left his house that day a murderer. And he stands here today accused of that murder. And the evidence will show he stood there, he saw an opportunity, and he took his shot.
0: The prosecution's story was simple David Martinez was a criminal gang member who knew the police were at his door and fired his shotgun, intending to hit an officer. To inquire about David's behavior the night of the shooting, Deputy District Attorney Jack Garden called to the stand a woman in her early 40s with long black hair and a soft voice. It was David's common-law wife, Sandra Roman.
3: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming in. Do you know David Martinez?
2: Yes. He's my uh, common-law husband.
3: Your boyfriend?
2: Yes. Yes.
3: How long have you guys been together?
2: 25 years. You love him? Yes.
3: You love him very much?
2: Yes. Back in
3: October of 2014, where were you living?
2: Uh, I was living at in the city of San Gabriel.
3: Are you a little nervous to be here today? Yes. Take a deep breath.
0: Generally, wives can't be forced to take the stand against their husbands. Marital privilege protects spouses from that situation. But Sandra and David weren't married, and common-law marriages aren't recognized in California, which means Sandra had to testify for the prosecution. Jack Garden questioned Sandra for hours. He asked about David's association with the Mongols, the events he attended, the people he knew, his assortment of Mongols' shirts and pictures. Finally, Garden zeroed in on the evening of the shooting. Sandra said that she went to bed that night at approximately 10 p.m., but she woke up at 3.30 a.m. David wasn't in bed, so she went to look for him and found him working on paperwork in the office.
3: Did you have a
2: conversation with him at that point? Not a full-on conversation, just letting him know to go to bed.
3: Was it unusual to you that he was up at 3.30 in the morning? No. No. Was there anything about him at that point in time that you thought was unusual about his behavior or anything like
2: that? Just that he was up late.
3: Was he acting erratic at all? No. To your knowledge, at the time, did the defendant use any type of drugs?
2: Can you be more specific at the time, like that night, or what do you mean?
3: Well, let's go back to the six months before this incident. Yes. What drugs was that? Marijuana. Any other drugs? No. Are you sure about that?
2: Six months, you're saying. I'm sure about that.
3: Do you recall that you had an interview the day of October 28, 2014? Yes. Do you remember who that interview was with?
2: No, I don't.
3: Some detectives from the sheriff's department? Correct. Are you aware that that interview was recorded? Yes. Have you ever had a chance to look at a transcript of that recording? Yes. Do you recall talking to those detectives about the defendant having used drugs? Yes. What drug did you tell them it was?
2: Methamphetamine.
0: Sandra Roman testified that during her interview with LASD detectives, she stated that David used drugs, specifically marijuana and methamphetamine. The prosecution focused on the meth, a substance known to cause rapid heartbeat, decreased appetite, and insomnia. Long-term abuse of the drug can also cause mood symptoms such as aggression, panic, and anxiety.
3: When David used methamphetamine, could you tell if he was
2: high? I would assume. I never knew for a fact.
3: At 3.30 in the morning when you saw him, was he high? I don't know. When you spoke with the detectives, do you recall that they asked you that specific question?
2: Yes, I do.
3: What did you tell them?
2: I said yes.
0: She did. The following is part of Sandra's actual recorded interview with LASD detectives Frederick Morse and Jeff Cochran in the hours after the SWAT raid.
4: Does David uh, use drugs? I'm pretty
5: sure it was obvious he does sometimes um, he has a problem with using methamphetamines. Okay. When he's trying to get help and he was gonna go to counseling he had that set up, but when he uses he doesn't tell me, you know, where or what, but I know he can just go on and get go on the street and go get something. I'm not um, happy about that.
4: Do you notice a difference in his behavior?
5: Yes.
3: You know when he's high? Was he high last night? Yes. When, where do you think he got high?
5: He had left, I
1: don't know where.
5: Doesn't tell me, doesn't like to tell me. When he gets high, he lies about it. Um, so he won't tell me.
3: So um, did that have
0: anything to do with him being awake at three in the morning, you think?
2: I believe so. He was working, doing reports.
0: Sandra wasn't the only one who thought David was high the night of the raid. In the hours after the shooting, Montebello PD detective Craig Adams told LASD detective Mark Lillianfeld that when David came out of the house, he appeared to be under the influence.
4: He was sweating, um, yelling, don't hurt my family. Uh, And then he said... He didn't say much to me, but he did say, um, "You guys should have said you were police."
3: Mm-hmm. And
4: then I sat him down. He he. Did you respond to that at all? No, okay. I didn't. I sat him down. Um, I just wanted to look at him because he, he was obviously agitated. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that he was sweating—it was still pretty chilly out. Um, you know, he was kind of gritting his teeth and um, yelling, just yelling. I was trying to calm him down
3: mm-hmm.
4: but he's more or less yelling hey leave my family alone you know you guys have no right
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know you guys shouldn't even be here what are you doing in my house things like that yeah so <clears throat> i tried to calm him down a little bit have him focus on me i had a little my uh my small flashlight and at that point i mean just because of the way he was obviously with the teeth and he's sweating he's just kind of bouncing off the walls mm-hmm. at that point so I, I just looked at his eyes Briefly. And, you know, they're dilated, so I thought maybe he was under the influence of something. Something like methamphetamine? Exactly. (laughs) Some kind of stimulant.
0: Detective Adams' assessment of David's condition was supported by a critical piece of evidence that officers found inside of the Martinez home. When investigators searched the office, they found a green plastic pop-top container shoved between the arm and the cushion of an upholstered chair. Inside the container was a Ziploc bag, and inside the bag was a Western Extermination business card, and approximately 0. 0.1367 grams of methamphetamine. But meth wasn’t the only illicit object discovered in David’s possession that night. Remember that investigators also found three firearms in the Martinez’ home. The first was a revolver. The second was the shotgun that David had in his hands when the SWAT team breached the door. Both of those firearms were legally registered to Sandra. But the third gun was stolen. Its serial number allowed investigators to track it back to its original owner, a man named Gordon Shackelford. Back in 2006, someone broke into Shackelford's vehicle and stole several items, including the 9mm firearm. How the firearm ended up in the Martinez home in 2014 is unclear. The prosecution displayed the 9mm to the jury, along with boxes of Mongols-related items found inside the Martinez residence. Mongols' t-shirts, flyers, belt buckles, plaques, and books. The litany of evidence, from the clothing to the literature, was meant to convey David's investment in the Mongols' motorcycle club, an organization which the deputy district attorneys referred to as a gang. According to the prosecution, David wasn't a member of the Mongols just for the motorcycles or for the parties. He was a member because he identified as an outlaw. When Detective Craig Adams took the stand, Jack Garden furthered that narrative with a series of photographs.
3: Sir, do you recognize what we see in this photograph? Yes. Tell us what that is.
5: It's a photograph I took about a week and a half ago of the defendant's chest and the tattoo depicts the Genghis Khan head.
0: The tattoo on David's chest is about four inches wide and sits at the bottom of his rib cage. And that particular tattoo, is it significant
3: within the Mongols' gang culture? Yes. With regards to tattoos, would you expect people who are not Mongols, Mongol members in good standing, to have such a tattoo? No. How come?
5: It's dangerous if they're not members of the Mongols. You have to be a member in good standing for approximately a year before you can get that kind of tattoo. If you're not a member, you are essentially, I guess, asking for trouble. And if you're not a member and you have a specific Mongols gang tattoo and they find out about it, they are going to confront you about it and most likely you are going to be injured as a result.
0: Next, Jack Garden asked Detective Adams to inspect a photograph found at the Martinez home a picture of four Mongols members posing at a party.
3: Can you tell us what you observe here in this photograph?
5: Yes, instantly I can tell you there are four fully patched Mongols members in good standing. On the far right is the defendant wearing his vest. On the far left is David Santian.
3: Who is David Santian?
5: He is the national president of the Mongols motorcycle gang and he has a moniker of Little David.
0: The prosecutor took back the photograph, and he handed Detective Adams an account statement showing the money placed on David's books during his incarceration. These were funds that could be used to purchase food or hygiene products from the jail's commissary. I now want to show you the account statement of
3: the defendant while he was in county jail. There's multiple entries in there. The first one that I will go to is from a person by the name of David Santillan. Yes.
0: The statement showed that the president of the Mongols had deposited $300 into David's account in December of 2014, just a few months after the shooting.
3: Would you expect fellow Mongols to deposit money in the
0: defendant's account if they weren't proud or approved of him?
5: I don't believe they would.
0: Detective Adams' testimony regarding David's tattoos and his interactions with the Mongols' president indicated that David had a strong relationship with the gang but it didn't implicate him in illicit activity. To tie together David's association with the Mongols and David's alleged capacity for violence, Jack Garden presented one compelling piece of evidence found during the search of the Martinez home, David's Mongols' motorcycle vest. The prosecution held up the garment for the jury, and Detective Craig Adams explained the meaning of all the patches sewn on the black worn leather.
5: On the front right of the vest itself, it says Mongols, California, Montebello, and it indicates the gang. Top left of the patch right here is the one percenters. It says MFFM, stands for Mongols forever, forever Mongols. And below that is a black respect few, fear none patch. And that's awarded to members who have committed violent acts, typically on rivals.
0: According to the prosecution, David assaulted a rival and had a badge to prove it. With David's potential for violence instilled in the jurors' minds, Jack Garden finished his examination of Detective Adams with questions about how a gang member might benefit from shooting an officer.
3: Does the individual that shot at a police officer, does that person gain respect within the gang? Yes. Tell us how that would occur.
5: Well... Mongols have a contentious relationship with law enforcement. And in grooming, that person has been groomed from day one to be violent. They've been groomed to be gang members. They've been groomed to commit acts of violence on others. They've been groomed to behave a certain way. And they've been groomed and instructed on ways that require them to hurt the community, hurt the public, hurt innocent people.
3: Is fear within the community a trait that the Mongols strive for? Absolutely. Committing such a crime, does it also help the Mongols obtain respect from the community and or from rival gang members?
5: Yes. And keeping in mind the word respect that I think we would use is skewed within the gang culture. You know, I might respect the district attorney for being good and doing his job, but when gangs are talking about respect from the community, they are talking about fear.
0: David Martinez was a Mongol in possession of a stolen firearm. He was a meth user in possession of the drug. And he appeared to have assaulted a rival gang member. Now, while such evidence might impact the way that the jurors perceived David, they are only parts of the prosecution's overall story. A story aimed at convincing the jurors that David was either guilty of murder in the first degree or murder in the second degree and that he did not act in lawful self-defense. We're going to examine each of those charges in depth in a later episode, but here are some broad strokes definitions to keep in mind. In California, first-degree murder is murder that is premeditated with the deliberate intent to kill. Second-degree murder is generally all killing with malicious intent, but without premeditation or deliberation, For example, when someone fires a gun into a crowded room and accidentally kills someone, or when an individual with multiple DUIs drives drunk and causes a fatal accident. Lawful self-defense occurs when an individual reasonably believes that they or someone else are in danger of imminent physical harm, and they use a reasonable amount of force to stop that danger. Over the course of the trial, the jury would come to understand that their belief in David's guilt or innocence would depend on what they believed he knew and what they believe he intended when he fired the weapon. If David knew it was the SWAT team at his door and intended to shoot at them, then he was probably guilty of some degree of murder. If he was unaware that the intruders were officers and intended only to shoot at people violently breaking into his home, then he was likely not guilty of all charges. Ultimately, the jury would have to wrestle with two simple questions. Did they believe that David heard the police announce themselves? And did they believe that David saw the police at the door? So how did the prosecution go about trying to persuade the jurors that David was aware of the police presence? They focused on the witnesses of the SWAT raid. All the witnesses at the scene of the shooting can be divided into two groups. Individuals who were outside the Martinez home, the Pomona SWAT team, the paramedics, and other officers taking part in the operation. And then those who were inside the Martinez home. That's David Sandra, their two kids, David's sister, and David's parents. Let's start outside. SWAT team lead Scott Hess was near the front door on the night Sean Diamond was shot. This is what he told LASD detectives about how the officers announced their presence.
4: I directed uh, both sides to uh, start making announcements uh, under PC 1531, but not to notice the demand entry. I repeatedly, loudly, clearly, yelled, shouted, you know, on, police department, search and open the door. want police department, search corner open the door. Um, in addition to um, reserve officer Dave Stevenson, uh was also tasked with that prior to and uh, during this uh, search point service. He also announced our presence and demanded entry. Um, Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Um, in relation to the house, where were you and Dave there Right outside the front door. We are almost on the porch. Okay. You weren't on the porch, so. No. I would be standing next to the, the way this porch is set up, uh, probably one foot on the stairs of oh, that porch. How many you say that you, you made that announcement? what of TV 80s, out
1: three to four times. Oh, yeah.
0: According to Officer Hess, they announced themselves loud and clear, three to four times. But Officer Hess was one of the officers who was yelling so obviously he heard the announcements. What about people farther away? Detective Craig Adams, the Montebello officer who was the affiant on the warrant, was one block north of the house when the raid began. During his interview with LASD detective Mark Lilienfeld, Craig described the noises he heard in the dark.
4: And when you got very close to the location, I take it you parked your car and got out? Yeah, we parked in a, on a street north of the Target house. Right. It was east to west street, don't know the name. Right. Uh, and we began walking up the sidewalk. Okay, what did you see or hear then? Um, as we neared San Marino, we were passing the uh, armored vehicles. And at that exact moment, when we were side by side the armored vehicles, I heard both to my left where the officers were deploying um, a few houses down, police search warrant,
1: mm-hmm.
4: a lot of yelling um, multiple times. And then simultaneously, I could hear that as well over the radio through the bear capsule. The We're same recording. thing, the, exactly. Uh, police search notice. warrant. We're not going to oh, notice. Okay.
0: Craig Adams heard the announcements from a few houses away. Other officers also heard the yelling from a distance. For instance, here's Edward McGeehee the San Gabriel officer who eventually had David Martinez in the back of his police cruiser. He was in his vehicle a half block east of the Martinez home at the time of the raid. Here's how he described what he heard to Sheriff's Detective Frederick Morse.
4: I heard multiple people yelling very loud, police, search warrant, police, police open the door. I heard... A couple of loud bangs, which at the time I perceived might have been flashbangs, uh, grenades. Couldn't really tell.
2: When you I say heard a couple,
3: are you saying two, two?
4: In very close succession. Okay. Did um, you
3: hear any yelling after that? Uh, the yes, bang? I heard
4: people continuing to yell, open the door, police, search warrant. And it, it sounded as if five, six, seven different people were all yelling. And. I was still a half a block away, and they were, they were yelling pretty loud.
0: Officer Hess, Detective Adams, and Officer McGehee weren't alone in their observations. At trial, Jack Garden called an additional 14 officers to the stand who were present the night of the raid.
3: Can you step down from the stand and demonstrate for us one of the announcements you made in the same voice and volume that you did that morning?
1: Police department, search warrant, open the door.
3: To your knowledge, did anyone else make announcements that morning? There were several officers. It was loud. I heard police, search warrant, open the door. Pomona Police Department, search
1: warrant, demand entry. Pomona SWAT, search warrant, open the door.
0: It was a parade of officers over a week of testimony in court. And while some details of their stories were different... Every one of them was adamant that announcements were made by numerous people prior to the shot. The Martinez house was relatively small. Two bedrooms, one bath, about 1,128 square feet. The whole structure could fit inside of the courtroom where David's trial took place. Jack Garden and Michael Blake argued that if officers could hear the SWAT announcements from blocks away... Then it was reasonable to believe that David heard the announcements in the residence. But all of the officers who testified were outside the Martinez home, out in the open air. What about inside the home? Did anyone inside hear or see the officers prior to the shot? Remember that at the time of the SWAT raid, Guadalupe and her husband Arturo were sleeping on the living room floor, just a few feet away from the front door. Arturo testified in court with the help of a Spanish language interpreter. Michael Blake questioned Arturo about what he heard when he woke up in the middle of the night.
1: You said you heard some noises early in the morning, is that right? Yes, that was what woke me up. Did you also hear voices at that time? No. Only noise. Describe the noise. Okay. You could hear pounding, hard pounding on the metal door. At the front of the house where the front door is? Yes. Continue describing the noise, please.
0: On the stand, Arturo initially described the noise the SWAT officers made. But remember what Arturo told detectives Jeff Cochran and Frederick Morse when he was at the hospital the day after the SWAT raid? Arturo,
4: what, uh, what woke you up this morning? Okay. I was sleeping
5: and I hear, uh, banging on my doors, very hard. And he say, police warning, open the door. Uh-huh. And I get up, I open the door. Oh, uh, uh, my house has two doors inside door and security door,
4: right? Like a metal security yes. door.
5: Yeah. And then I open my first door. And when I do like that, to open the security door, that's when I hear the
4: shot. But what initially woke you up is you heard someone banging on the door yelling police? Yes. Did they say police or anything else? I say a a warrant or something like that. That's what I hear. That's why I decided to open the door. Right. You
0: heard police and warrant. In court, Arturo eventually acknowledged to the prosecutor that he heard the police announcements.
1: Okay. I heard what sounded Three times I heard it sounded like someone kicking the door and saying, police, open the door. You actually heard police warrants open the door. Isn't that true? I heard police open the door like two or three times. And then at the end, they say warrant. When you heard the banging on the door and police warrants open the door or police open the door, did you believe it was safe to open the door at that point? Yes, because the police, for me, I didn't have anything to hide. So I felt safe opening the door for the police.
0: Guadalupe also heard voices the night of the raid. Here's what she told LASD detective Jeff Cochran.
2: Did something happen? if you, were you awake or were you walking or something? Okay, let me explain. Um, so I was sleeping in my husband too. Around two or three o'clock in the morning. So I hear... The door the doors, my dogs barking real loud. I have a uh, Chihuahuas and one uh, German shepherd and I hear my dogs barking real loud. and then I wake up and then i I hear the door to somebody was kicking the door real loud and say, "Open the door but uh, I say, who is it you know I I, I I never realized who was the police. So when they say, open the door, it's the police. And then... So they said, open the door, police.
0: Yes, yes. While Guadalupe and Arturo were initially confused by the sounds at the door and the dogs barking, they both eventually heard the police announcements. But what did they see? How dark was it inside the home and on the porch? Were the officers visible? During the trial, Guadalupe took the stand, and Jack Garden questioned her about the lights in the home. Like Arturo, Guadalupe testified with the assistance of a Spanish language interpreter. What lights do you leave on in the
3: house when you go to sleep?
2: Outside in the porch, there is a light on the porch, and there is a light in the backyard also.
3: Do you leave a light on in the living room nearby where Brenda sleeps?
2: No, because the light coming from the porch comes on. You don't need to have light in there.
3: The light on the porch is very bright. Regular. But it gives off enough light that you said it comes into the house. Yes. Do you have blinds in your living room? Yes. On the night of the 27th, do you remember if those blinds were opened or closed?
0: They were open. In the moments before Sean Diamond was shot, he was standing on the Martinez porch with five other men. They were illuminated by a porch light.
3: So when the wood door opened... You looked through the white security door and you saw it was the police. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yes.
3: That was before the explosion. Yes. How many police officers were you able to see as you looked through the white security door?
2: I didn't count them.
3: When you testified at the preliminary hearing, do you remember that you testified to how many police officers you were able to see through the white security door? Well,
2: Well, the porch was covered with them.
3: How many did you see?
2: Five, six.
3: And you could clearly tell they were police at that time, right?
0: Yes. In addition to the porch light, officers stated that there was a light on inside the Martinez home when they arrived. Here's Officer Jaime Martinez speaking with LASD Detectives Troy Ewing and David Gunner, as well as Deputy DA Andrew Kim, in the hours after the SWAT operation.
3: When you
1: approached the house, did
3: you notice any lights on inside? Or was it dark? When I approached the house, uh, I looked through what was identified I guess, as a living room window facing in the front yard area. That initial room was dark, however, there was a room, there was light coming
4: from a room past that, so I'm not sure if there was a light inside by the doorway area or inside
0: coming from the hallway, but there was a light inside the house. The porch light was on, and there was a light on inside the home beyond the front room. Guadalupe saw the six officers through the metal screen door, and she eventually identified them as police. Guadalupe and Arturo both heard the police announce themselves, and according to Detective Adams and Officer McGeehy, the announcements were so loud that they could be heard up to a block away. Along with the physical evidence and witness testimony, the prosecution pointed to David Martinez's changing story as proof that David's claims of self-defense could not be trusted. We covered David's shifting narrative in our second installment— you might remember the story that David shouted to a fellow Mongol member through a vent in his Montebello jail cell.
3: Hey, they come to my pad, bro,
2: and I I was laying down, bro, and I just hear someone start fucking like, pulling the door, right?
0: David was lying down, and he heard someone pulling the door. So I grabbed the gauge, bro, naturally, because who it was. He grabbed his gauge, his gun, because he didn't know who it was.
3: And and I fucking walking towards the door, dog, my dad's by the door and doing that wait with me because no, nobody saves any he just me on the floor and my dad opened
0: the door. As he walked toward the door, he saw his dad by the door and David said, "Wait, wait, wait. But his dad opened the door.
5: I see a girl broke and just by, by that
0: time when I the gun like he let off and I let off. David saw the gun and quote "He let off and I let off end quote." It seems that David means they both fired their weapons.
3: I hit him in the face and he hit my dad in the arm, fool. Because he he, he yelled out my face.
0: David's bullet hit the man with the gun in the face. And the man's bullet hit David's dad in the arm. Bro,
3: if I wouldn't have known him as a bro, I wouldn't have fucking done that, bro.
0: Then there was the story David told to undercover officers dressed as inmates during the Perkins operation.
5: Oh my God, bro.
0: From my understanding, bro, I think his partner next to him shot him, bro. Why
2: you guys exchange fire?
0: Why you guys exchanged fire? My dad got hit too. My dad got hit too. They hit my dad. I shot, but I don't think I hit him, bro. I my dad told my mom he seen that when they pulled him out of there, the other cop was telling him, "Sorry, bro, I'm sorry." Then, eight days after his arraignment, David told his mother, Guadalupe, a slightly different narrative over the phone.
2: You are innocent, and everything is going to be fine. Don't worry. My rifle never, never,
4: never fired, okay? I know, son. I know. I saw everything, son.
2: I saw everything,
0: okay? Now, years later, the story of the defense was that David did fire his shotgun, and that the slug from that shotgun hit both Arturo in the arm and Sean Diamond in the neck. But according to Brady Sullivan... David wasn't guilty of murder because he was unaware the police were at his door. He believed unknown intruders were breaking into his home and shot to protect himself and his family from imminent danger. From the prosecution's perspective, David's changing stories were not a product of him processing a traumatic event or assimilating new information. They were a series of desperate manipulations— lies he told to try to get himself off the hook for the murder of a police officer. In closing arguments, Jack Garden laid out the backbone of the prosecution's case for the jury. Good morning.
3: That cop that the defendant shot was Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond. The defendant shot Officer Diamond while Officer Diamond's back was to the defendant, while Officer Diamond's gun was in his holster while Officer Diamond was walking away from the defendant and they are going to want to call that self-defense. Officer Diamond posed no threat to the defendant, zero threat. The defendant took his shotgun that I'm holding in my hands, he shouldered that shotgun, he aimed this gun at Pomona Police Officer Sean Diamond and he pulled the trigger. He pulled the trigger knowing it was loaded with slug rounds, A one-ounce hunk of lead that traveled into the back of the neck of Officer Diamond. A one-ounce hunk of lead that went through his third vertebra that severed his spinal cord. David Martinez is a one-percenter, and he is proud of it. What's an outlaw? Someone who doesn't want to live by the laws. And that's exactly what the Mongols are. Why do they have the vests? Why do they have the tattoos? It's to send a message of intimidation. It's a message to tell other people, wherever they are, we are the Mongols, don't mess with us, we are outside of the law. Look at the shirts they wear, shirts that say badass motherfuckers. What kind of message does that send? This is not a case of self-defense. The physical evidence here is overwhelming that this is not a case of self-defense. You have multiple police officers in uniform on the porch, What else do we have from that morning? We have the light on the porch. You have the police officers wearing uniforms that say police. We also had another message that was conveyed to the house at San Marino at four o'clock in the morning on October 28th. Officer Hess yelled, Pomona Police Department, search warrant, open the door. And we heard from Officer Sevesind, and we heard the message that he conveyed that morning. Pomona Police Department, search warrant, open the door. And all of these SWAT officers made these announcements multiple times, over and over again. Why? Because they want to go home at the end of their shift. They want the people in the house to be safe. We heard testimony from both his mom and his dad. They were in the living room. The defendant, too, was in the living room prior to the door being opened and both mom and dad were well aware of who was at the door. They testified to it. They heard police. They were opening the door for the police. Self-defense in this case works. However, you have to disregard all the physical evidence the lighting on the porch, the announcements, all of those things you have to completely disregard and throw out the window if you want self-defense to work. But that's not it. You also have to leave your common sense in the hallway. The most important factor of why self-defense doesn't work is you have to believe his stories. You have to believe the defendant. You have to believe that it was an honest belief on the part of the defendant in the need to use self-defense. And you simply can't believe him because he's a manipulator. There's three fatal flaws here in the defense case. One is a physical scene. The other is a fundamental rule of self-defense, which you don't get to shoot a man in the back. And three, Mr. Sullivan wants you to believe that you can disregard all of the defendant's lies. How do you do that with any common sense? How can you do that? Are we going to give the defendant a pass? Is this his free murder? In this case, the doorway is the path to the truth because right on the outside of that doorway is a six-foot-two man wearing a green uniform with the words police on the back. The truth is a mere five feet away from the defendant. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you the evidence here is overwhelming against the defendant. It's overwhelming for first-degree murder, also overwhelming with regards to count two, the assault with a firearm on a police officer. Thank you for your time, your diligence. I think when you go back there and discuss it amongst yourselves, you will come to the true verdict, which is guilty on both counts. Thank you.
0: David Martinez was a Mongol biker. He did meth. He possessed an illegal firearm. So how could the jury trust this man when he said he didn't see six officers under the porch light? How could they believe him when he said he didn't hear their announcements right outside his door? Maybe they couldn't. Here's an excerpt from our interview with one of the jurors. You're saying you started out actually leaning towards, oh, it seems like this guy's guilty. Absolutely.
1: Based on the type of weapon, based on the gang affiliation based on having
4: respect for the police, uh, not assuming that they would
2: botch something.
4: It was very
3: hard for me to really believe
4: that this was something that could have gone off the rails so much that somebody could
3: be that confused that they would shoot and truly have done that in an
2: accidental manner.
0: It's hard to believe that an operation like this could go off the rails so much. But according to defense attorney Brady Sullivan, that's exactly what happened. In his presentation of the case to the jury, he argued that Pomona's ill-conceived SWAT operation made for a chaotic scene that obscured the officers' announcements to several residents of the home. So what did the other members of the Martinez family witness? Did Sandra know the police were at the door? What did 10-year-old David Jr. hear in the dark?
3: Did you wake up at some point in the morning?
2: Mm, wait, when you guys came?
0: That's next time on Night Raid.
2: I'll tell the Undertaker that you're a
0: You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnupp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guada, with Foley assistance by Elia Guada, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. Voice actors in the episode were Ellie Ramirez, David Hemmingson, Tonancina Sparza, Carrie Antholis. Andy Bulldog, Joshua Nicolas Moreno, Gilbert Reynoso, Ted Braun, Vincent Umaña, Salvador Lopez, and Blanca A. Soto. Special thanks to Sam Dillon. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening.